0: Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read the first 13 verses. Hear the word of God as it comes to us this evening. Wherefore, seen we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let me just say here that those witnesses are the Old Testament saints who live by faith that are listed for us in chapter 11, as as you well know. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, that is, illegitimate children, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, that's our earthly fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But He, God, chastens us for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening for the present, Seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed." Thus far, the reading of God's precious and infallible word. May he bless it to our souls. Well, tonight in our confessional readings, as this church embraces both the three forms of unity and the three Westminster Standards, we're starting to read once again the Westminster Larger Catechism. You recall that Westminster Confession of Faith was uh, written, and then the uh, shorter catechism and the larger catechism is the three Westminster Standards. Well, the larger catechism has close to 200 questions, and the answers tend to be longer than the shorter catechism, which is more for younger people, although it's become the most famous of the three. The larger catechism is not as well known, but it's got some really good theology and practical Practical answers as well and very experiential. So I'm excited that we're starting to read this again. So tonight is just the first three questions that you can find in your bulletin. What is the chief end, chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Question two. How does it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. And question three, what is the word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience.
1: Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. As you do so, let me say what a privilege and pleasure it is for me to be with you once again. It's a number of years since I was here, but... I remember my times here with much affection and do want to thank you so much for the generosity of spirit that you exhibit and the warmth of your godly welcome to me. Hebrews chapter 12, wherefore seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You will know that in the New Testament, the life of faith in Jesus Christ is oftentimes described in terms of a race a race that has a beginning, a race that has a continuing and a race that has an ending. And here the apostle urges us to run with patience the race that is set before us. It's a very striking description of what it means to be a Christian believer. It means to be involved in a race a race that has a beginning. It begins when God in his great loving kindness and mercy draws us to his son Jesus Christ and causes us to cast the weight of all that we are on the grace and sufficiency of all that he is. We may come to that point dramatically. We may come to that point quietly. It matters not What matters is that we come to that place where we find ourselves, by the great grace of God in Jesus Christ, planted into a race. That's how we begin the race. And from thereafter, we are to continue in the race. We are to go on in the race. It's significant and vital that we begin, but more than that, we're to go on. You remember how the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord hath prepared not only for me, but for all who have loved his appearing. And Paul is reminding Timothy that it's not enough for him to have begun the race or even to go on faithfully for a time in the race. He must finish the race if he is to receive the crown of righteousness Now, you will know probably that this letter to the Hebrews was written most probably to Jewish converts, men and women who had come to see in Jesus Christ the promised Messiah of God, the serpent crusher who would come and bring and win salvation for all who would put their hope and trust alone in him, They had turned their back on the empty ceremonialism of Judaism and had planted their lives by the grace of God in the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. But these believers were experiencing hardship. There was hostility. It seems there was an increasing persecution of them. We read in chapter 10, for example, that a number of them had 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 their inheritances taken from them, their houses robbed from them. Some of them were in prison. They were experiencing the cost of belonging to Jesus Christ. And this writer to the Hebrews writes to them what he calls in chapter 13 a brief word of exhortation. Thirteen chapters long, a brief word of exhortation. I'm actually never really sure that exhortation captures precisely the nuance of what the writer wants to convey to them. It is almost The word almost has the idea of encouraging exhortation. He wants his exhortations to be clothed with encouragement. He doesn't simply want to lay upon their consciences, exhortation after exhortation after exhortation, but he wants to clothe those exhortations in grace. It's a pastoral letter written to professing Christians who are in danger of turning back from Jesus Christ. The pressures of the world were so great that this letter is written in the hope that what he writes will keep them from apostatizing will keep them from turning away from the Son of God who loved them and who gave himself for them. And as a pastor, the apostle uses two main weapons in his pastoral armory to hopefully recover and restore and replant these men and women, boys and girls, in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. On a number of occasions throughout the letter, I think there are six in all, he presents them with what we might call warnings. He warns them of the dread consequences of turning back from Jesus Christ. The first one you find in chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And he punctuates his letter again and again and again with solemn warnings. They're like wake-up calls. He's saying to them, if you turn back from Jesus Christ, you're turning back from the only Savior given by God. You're turning your back on the hope of glory. You're turning your back on God Himself. And you're turning into disaster. Eternal disaster. And faithful pastors need to righteously warn God's people. Of the dreadful consequences of turning back and turning away from Jesus Christ. But because he's a faithful pastor, that's not the only weapon in his pastoral armory, and it's not even the principal weapon in his pastoral armory. Because his great burden, and we'll see this in a moment, God willing, his great burden is to so lift up to them the preeminence of Jesus Christ, his superiority over everything and everyone who went before him, that they would think, how could we ever turn away from him? In chapter 1, he holds up to them the preeminence of Christ over the whole angelic creation. And then he shows them the glorious preeminence of Christ over even Moses, the man through whom God gave his law to his covenant people. And then he shows them, you may remember, how gloriously preeminent Jesus Christ is over Aaron and the whole Levitical priesthood. He wants them to see that there is nothing and no one who begins to begin to begin to compare with the glory of the Son of God incarnate Jesus Christ. And that's the great burden on his heart. And it's almost as if this whole letter is bookended by two little phrases that encapsulate the burden of the apostle's heart. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And the verb has the idea of thoughtfully ponder, deliberately set your mind upon Jesus. And then in chapter 12, verse 3, consider him. Consider him. I hardly know any of you here this evening, but I would be surprised if there were not some who were thinking of turning back from the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps the hostility you're experiencing in school or amongst friends or in your neighborhood or in your place of work, you're beginning to think, is it, is it worth the cost? Consider him consider him. And so the writer here, and it's really verse two that I want us especially to focus on this evening, says to this people to whom he is writing who are in danger of turning back from Christ, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. I often think it's, it's sad that our English versions, and all of them I think have the same problem, don't begin to capture the thrust of the Greek text. Because the verb really means this, looking away from yourselves and looking to Jesus, aphorontes. It's a present active participle. It has two aspects to it. We're not simply to look to Jesus but we are to look away from ourselves. We're to look away from everything connected with us. If we're going to press on and go on with Jesus Christ, we need to look away from ourselves and everything connected with us. We need to look away from our piety, look away from our Bible reading. Look away from our prayers. Look away from our church membership. Look away from our pastors. Look away from our elders. Look away from everything and everyone. Because we are principally, exclusively to look to Jesus. Both our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus. And you'll know how chapter 12 begins with this great cloud of witnesses. And the point is not... We're to look to them. They were all failures. They were men and women of faith who, by the grace of God, persevered. They did not turn back or give up. But you're not to look to them, he's saying. You're to look away from everything to Jesus. The great cloud of witnesses are looking on. Perhaps they're cheering but they're looking on, and what they all want you to do is what they did by the grace of God. Look away from yourself to Jesus Christ. If we had time, we could explore the 11th chapter. We could see, for example, how Moses endured the seeing him who is invisible. We're to look away from ourselves. We're to look away from our sins. We're to look away from our graces. We're to look away from our husbands and our wives. We're to look away from everything and anyone. And we are to look to Jesus. Both our eyes physically as well as spiritually, I think, in the totality of our being, is to look to Him. Look to Him. And what I want you to notice here is the threefold encouragement or exhortation or encouraging exhortation that the apostle gives to these hard-pressed, persecuting persecuted believers, looking away to Jesus. Number one, look to him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Now, you'll see in the King James Version that the word our is in italics, and that's because it's not in the Greek text. And the translators made the assumption that the apostle is saying that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, and that's true. He is the one who began a good work in us, Philippians 1.6, and who will bring that work to completion. You need to look to Him who not only brought you to Himself, but who will keep you. He alone has the power and the will and the purpose and the grace and the love to sustain you in the fragility of your faith. It's not your faith that will carry you through. It's Jesus Christ who will carry you through. But I think there's a reason why in the Greek text the word our is not there because the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith is because he himself was the man of faith par excellence whose whole life was a life of faith, who began in his mother's womb like John the Baptist to be sanctified unto a life of faith, and who to the very end, even as he hung a propitiatory sacrifice on Calvary's cross, He could cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the dereliction of his human soul, the personal relationship and trust in God, perhaps the sense of the fatherhood of God was lost to him, but the godness of God, his God, was not lost to him. He is able to keep you because upheld by the Spirit, he himself was kept. The holy humanity of Jesus Christ is a glorious truth. His whole life was a life of unblemished faith and trust in God the Father. And the writer is saying, look to him, he did not falter in his faith. Every breath He breathed. He breathed in trustful, loving, holy obedience to His heavenly Father. Look away to Jesus, who not only began that good work of faith in you, but who will bring that good work to completion. Because He Himself, He Himself never faltered, never failed. Too often we allow the devil and our own yet sinful hearts to turn us in upon ourselves, and we're always looking for crumbs of comfort within brothers and sisters in Christ and everyone else. There isn't a crumb of comfort in you to keep you Jesus Christ is our righteousness from God, the wisdom of God, our sanctification and our redemption. He is our all in all. I was saying this morning in another congregation, I love those two little words that Uh, the magisterial reformers Calvin, Heinrich Bullinger, Ulrich Zwingli, and and others used to capture and encapsulate the Christian faith. they, They wrote again and again, the Christian faith is extra nos. It's outside of ourselves. All our hope lies outside of ourselves. My hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he's saying, look away to Him. Look away to Him, the author and finisher of faith. He will keep you. He will keep you. And then secondly, he says, look away from yourselves to Jesus who endured the cross, despising its shame. Do you see the connection here? Why are we to look to Him who endured the cross, despising its shame? Because He's reminding these men and women once again that they have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to bear the cost of faithfulness to God. We don't have a Savior who who cruised to glory. We don't have a Savior who was who was untouched by the tragedies and the the disappointments and the exigencies of life, but we have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, who endured the cross, despising its shame. And where is he now? Where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think he's saying to them, if you one day would be seated with him at the right hand of the throne of God, then like him, united to him, you must endure your cross and despise your shame. You know, when the Scriptures summon us to look away to Christ, Or go back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 45, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. It's not simply that we are to glance occasionally or we are to give a a passing observation. It is that we are to fix our eyes on Him, be transfixed by Him, have our whole gaze Focused, relentlessly. Not occasionally, but moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Someone says to you tomorrow, "What were you looking at over the weekend?" Maybe thinking there was some TV program. You say, "I was looking at Jesus Christ." Oh my! Does that mean you were in church? Yes, but I was looking at Him all through the day. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. He endured the cross. He understands suffering. He knows firsthand the pain, the hostility. He knows what it is to suffer in our flesh because he is our flesh. And look now where he is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then thirdly, he says, returning to those few words, look away to Jesus who is seated, set down at the right hand of the throne of God, And he would be expecting his readers to remember what he wrote right at the outset of his letter. Verse 3 of chapter 1, Who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High, where are we to fix our gaze? On the one who purged our sin, who cleansed us, who propitiated God for us, who completed the perfect work of atonement for us. We're to look to him, crucified and now risen and seated in, in the place of highest honor, because there God was placarding to the heaven of heavens and to the cosmos that His Son had made a perfect atonement for sin. And He's saying to them, how can you turn back from Him who is seated in the place of highest honor, enthroned by God the Father, because... He became for us the propitiation for our sins. To turn back from Jesus Christ is to turn back from the only propitiation for sin in the cosmos. He says we're to look away to Jesus as we run this race. We're to keep our eyes fixed, not on the finishing line. But beyond the finishing line. Looking away from ourselves and all things connected with us. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Let me seek in a few moments to earth those truths in three applications. First of all, and very obviously, I think it says to us that faithful pastors must first and foremost be men who preach Jesus Christ. I love those words of Paul in in Colossians 1, is it verse 28? Him we proclaim. Now, preachers have to preach much about many things. But if in those many things we are not preaching Jesus Christ, we're not preaching. We are to preach Jesus Christ wherever we find ourselves in the Scriptures. Whether we're in in the midst of ethics or eschatology or pneumatology, we're to preach Christ. Him we proclaim. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. We preach not ourselves ourselves. But Jesus Christ as Lord. That's to be the principal hallmark of every authentic gospel pastor. When people say, What kind of a preacher is in your church? He preaches Jesus Christ. What else does he he preach? Nothing else. He's always preaching Jesus Christ. They say, Well, is that not a bit dull and boring? Is it not repetitive? How could it be repetitive when he's preaching him? in whom the immensities and infinities of the Godhead dwell. The whole of eternity will be an endless exploration of Jesus Christ. And we will never, ever, ever be bored or be dulled. We will marvel at the wonders that cascade from the immensities and infinities of the God-man. That's why congregations must hold their pastors to this. Brothers and sisters, hold your pastors to this. That they preach Jesus Christ. That they don't preach themselves. That's a danger for pastors. We preach ourselves subtly. My, we have a very intelligent pastor. You know he knows this and he knows that and he knows the next thing. You know I'm not downgrading intelligence. I don't mean that. But pastors must be men who first and foremost lift up Jesus Christ. Lift him up in the glory of his eternal deity, of his pristine holy humanity. Glory in the hypostatic union. You know, John Owen wrote her, the English Puritan, said, the glory of the Christian religion. How would you finish that sentence? The glory of the Christian religion is. Well, I think instinctively I would have said the glory of the Christian religion is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's not what Owen says. He says something that gives weight to the cross of Jesus Christ. He says the glory of the Christian religion is the hypostatic union, the union in Jesus Christ of the Godhead and the manhood, because the cross of Jesus Christ rests on the glory of that glorious conjunction of deity and humanity. That's what gives glory to Calvary, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. faithful pastors must preach Jesus Christ. Secondly, every Christian, every Christian must daily resolve to look away from themselves to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're very different from me, but sadly to my shame, too often I'm tempted to look at my piety, or what I think is my piety. Look at my knowledge, the books I've read, the things I've remembered. People say, that's amazing. You can remember all this stuff, and you quote this Latin, and this Hebrew, and you think, well, yeah, I, I think I'm doing pretty well. And Satan says, yes, you are. And the Lord is about to write Ichabod over my life. Brothers and sisters, we're to look away from ourselves. Look away from our history. Look away from our heritage. Look away from our piety, our Bible reading, our praying. And you know all of these things in themselves are good and and right and I think even necessary. But we're to look away to Jesus. For in me that is in my flesh there dwells no good thing. And dare I say this, you're to look away from your God-given blessings and you're even to look away from your sins. Satan will have you absorb yourself in your sins. We need to take every sin to the blood of Christ, every moment of every day, spoken and unspoken. When our sins rise to condemn us and there is something in us that would almost wallow in the reality of our sin, we need to take those sins to Calvary. And have them cleansed. We're to look away to Jesus. But then thirdly, unbelievers, people who are not yet in Christ, they need to understand that there is no hope before God outside of Jesus Christ. You need to look to Him. You remember how Charles Spurgeon was converted to Christ? He found himself as a young man in a very snowy winter's night in London and he set out for worship and he eventually arrived in this little Baptist chapel and he was the only one there. The preacher didn't arrive. The weather was so inclement. And the church officer opened the Bible And he quoted the words from Isaiah 45, look to me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. And he looked over at Spurgeon. He was the only one in the congregation. He says, young man, you look miserable. Look to God. A look will do it. A look will do it. Isn't the gospel astonishing? What must I do to be saved, look to Christ? You think, is it, is it as simple as that? No. It took the incarnation and bloody propitiation of the Son of God for you to look to Him. One look will do it. Nothing else will do it. There is no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. Look away from your Bible reading. My Bible? Re- Are you telling me not to read the Bible? Absolutely not. Your Bible reading won't save you. Look away from your prayers. Are you saying I shouldn't pray? No, but your prayers won't save you. Look away from your presence at the means of grace. Are you saying I shouldn't come faithfully to the means of grace? No, but the means of grace won't save you. Look to Him. Do you know the hymn with the line, None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. None but Jesus the Son of God who became the Son of Man, who came into the world taking our frail flesh to Himself. And in that frail flesh, living the life we could never live, dying the death we could never die, so that upon a life we did not live and upon a death we did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. If you're struggling with the temptation to turn away, to go back, look to Him. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Look to Him who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the gospel. He is everything that God could ever give you. God's got nothing to give you or to give me outside of His Son. In giving us His Son, He's given us everything He could ever give us. Look to Him and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we bless you together tonight for your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in times eternal you covenanted with Him in the Spirit to save a people to the praise of your glory. We bless you tonight that that salvation comes to us when we look alone to Jesus Christ. O Lord, may we never weary of looking unto him, the author and finisher of faith. Meet with us, Lord, in our need, we pray. Cleanse us from all our sin. Deliver us, O God, from looking into ourselves. May we seek all our days to look to Him and by the grace of Your Spirit at work explore the immensities and the infinities of the grace and love of God that is in Jesus Christ And we pray in his name. Amen.